seven nations more numerous and mightier than yourselves. And when the Lord your God gives them over to you, and you defeat them, then you must devote them to complete destruction. You shall make no covenant with them, and show no mercy to them. You shall not intermarry with them, giving your daughters to their sons, or taking their daughters for your sons. And they would turn, for they would turn away your sons from following me, to serve other gods. Then the anger of the Lord would be kindled against you, and he would destroy you quickly. But thus shall you deal with them. You shall break down their altars, and dash in pieces their pillars, and chop down their ashram, and burn their carved images with fire. For you are a people holy to the Lord your God. The Lord your God has chosen you to be a people for his treasured possession out of all the peoples who are on the face of the earth. So here the danger is the danger of being influenced by the Canaanites around them. And God is very strong in what they're supposed to do. They need to defeat and utterly destroy these Canaanite peoples. Make no covenant with them and don't let your pity interfere with fulfilling this agenda. They were to destroy all the detestable forms of worship, to remove all temptation to follow after these pagan practices. Uh, he, he says don't make a covenant with them, don't intermarry with them, because they will turn your heart away. This close association with wicked people rubs off. <coughs> you think about the encouragement of being here having good conversations, studying the Bible together, praying together, singing together. Isn't that encouraging? Because a good atmosphere rubs off on us, but so does a bad one. So when we are around a lot of wicked things, and the closer we get, the more uh, you know, emotionally attached we get, and the more we cherish and treasure these worldly things, the worse it is. God knew they'll go into this land, and if they let these Canaanites and their worship practices stay around, they will eventually follow after them themselves. Now you think about what we ought to do. Our goal is to ruthlessly root out all sin in our own minds. To, to spare nothing, to have no pity, but to be totally devoted to the Lord. As God says, you go into that land and you get rid of the Canaanites and their worship. We go into our lives and we get rid of the sin and all the wicked things, the idolatrous things, and devote ourselves purely to God because there's that danger of letting the root of sinful behavior and practices continue and then begin to just uh, seep into us and eat away at our conviction and our commitment. That's exactly what happened. Solomon, when he intermarried with those pagan wives, they stole his heart away. That's the danger we face. Thoughts and comments uh, through verse 6 here in chapter 7. Yes. It just kind of reminds me, we've been studying Judges in our Bible class, and it reminds me of the end of Judges chapter 1 when they were not driving out the inhabitants of the land, and it's interesting you actually see a progression in the end of Judges 1 where it says in verse 27 that Manasseh did not drive out the inhabitants of the land. Uh, and then it says uh, the Ephraimites did not drive out the Canaanites, but the Canaanites dwelt in the land among them. And then it eventually says neither did Asher drive out the inhabitants 
but the Asherites dwelt among the Canaanites. And so it's like the Canaanites are the default population there now. And then it says Dan didn't even, you know, Bob Dan was driven out by the Canaanites. So it's just interesting, you know, the, the more you let sin have a foothold, uh, the more you're going to pay the price. Amen. Yeah, the only way to deal with anything that's sinful is cut it out, root it out, everything. Cold turkey completely. Other thoughts? Brad. Well, in Nehemiah, it says, In those days also I saw the Jews that married wives Bashdod and Ammon and Moab. And their children spake half the speech of Bashdod and did not speak the Jews language. So we, we don't take heed of these things. We can move away from the speaking of things that are true in the of God. It draws our hearts away. It does. And we let the world draw us away with these things. Don't us. That's very dangerous. Alex. There's that parable about cleaning the house, uh, driving the demon out of the house, and if you don't fill it with something, seven more will come in, and the second state will be worse than the first. So not only do you have to remove bad influences, but you have to fill it with good influences to replace them. Yeah, excellent point. Amen. Other thoughts? Yes, Joe. You want to think that we can, you know, want to take us the cost and we do not be deceived. And I think we have to help each other and really encourage each other to not be deceived that this will affect them. Yes. Good point. So these are just practical dangers. I mean, they're coming into the land, but the tendency will be let the prosperity cause them to forget the Lord, let the presence of the Canaanites in their worship be a corrupting influence on them and then begin to lead the Canaanite lifestyle and worship the Canaanite gods. Those are just the kind of, of negative things that he's worried about the moment. So we need to really be, be careful about that. Okay. I think what we're going to do, I'm going to go ahead and take our break now. When we would take about 15 or 20 minutes, are continuing to look at Deuteronomy 7, thinking about that danger of being influenced by the uh, Canaanites around them. And uh, Deuteronomy 7, would somebody read verses 7 to 19?
but he will lay on lay them on all who hate you. And you shall consume all the people that the Lord your God will give over to you. Your eyes shall not pity them, neither shall you serve their gods, for that would be a snare to you. You say in your heart, These nations are greater than I, how can I dispossess them? You shall not be afraid of them, but you shall remember that what the Lord your God did to Pharaoh and to all Egypt. The great trials that your eyes saw, the signs, the wonders, the mighty hands, and the outstretched arm, by which the Lord your God brought you out. So will the Lord your God do to all the peoples of whom you are afraid. Okay. So why did God choose them anyway? You know, what was it that caused God to to bless these people? It's kind of a heavy thing to think that God chose this nation, this people, you know, this family that he would bless. And he sort of tries to pop any self-inflated bubbles of pride right here. He says uh, he didn't choose you because you were more than any other nation. It wasn't because of your physical strength. It wasn't because of how many of you there were. Is that actually you were the fewest of the people. I mean, yes, they multiplied. But if you think about Israel, in comparison with the world's superpowers, they were sort of a minnow among the nations. They were not really going to create much of a splash. And it wasn't because God just thought they were such an up-and-coming great empire that he chose them. Why did God choose them? Well, he loved them. And why did he love them? Well, it looks to me like he pretty much loved them because he loved them. You know, and because he had the commitment to their fathers. But there wasn't something like so winsome in them that caused him to love them. And uh, he will he will talk in later chapters about other reasons why he didn't choose them. He doesn't want them to get the big head because they are God's special people. And that's something for us to think about as well. He divides them into two categories in verses 9 and 10. There are those who love him and those who hate him. There's really not any middle ground. You're one or the other. And those who love him, he blesses. Those who hate him, he will repay. Uh, and that's, that's kind of the, uh, the consequences of our choice about the Lord. Now he goes back and he talks about what he will do for them as they are faithful to him. He promises them prosperity, health, military success. He specifically talks a lot in verse 13 and 14 about how he will bless uh, their crops and he will bless their herds and their flocks. And uh, one of the points that he's making by that is to help them see that fertility comes from serving him, not from serving the Baals. You know, the Baal gods, the Baal uh, you know, group, we might almost say in our lingo, was, was supposed to be the ones. You know, you serve the Baals and you're prosperous and, and the land is prosperous and fertile. But that was not at all. Uh, the way that that really was, according to the to the Lord, it's Him that gives the prosperity, and that was something that they needed to really think about and uh, and and respond to properly. God offers grain, wine, and oil; those were the staple crops of Palestine. It's really dramatic. He says, "I'm going to bless you a lot." if you'll be faithful to me. He promises in verse 15 not to put on them any of the harmful diseases 
of Egypt. I think people misunderstand that. Sometimes people think that he's just promising them health and, you know, maybe the Egyptians, I don't know, maybe they got typhoid or pneumonia or something and he wouldn't give them that. I really think the diseases he's thinking about here are the plagues. And he's promising not to, to curse them with those plagues. I think that's the point. Uh, that God would protect them from his judgments. And, uh, he, but he says they've got a responsibility to execute God's uh, orders to destroy the peoples and to not serve their gods. You know, it, sometimes we have a hard time with the idea of opposing things. You know, because in our culture, tolerance and acceptance are kind of the chief <coughs> virtues. And so the idea that we would oppose someone try to defeat them, destroy them, be against them. That sounds very negative. It sounds like something that only narrow-minded and, and really bad people would do. But you see so much in the Bible, the idea of truth and error, the idea of light and darkness, the idea that God wants us to be opposed to the things that are against Him. It's very difficult to really cheer for your team and not cheer against their opponents. You know, I, I have a particular uh, basketball team that's my favorite that is not generally accepted in this part of the country. Uh, I suspect that in this crowd it might be. But uh, it so happens that that not only uh, do, do the uh, people here cheer for IU, they actually cheer against UK. Hard to believe, but, uh, you know, because you want your team to win, and you want, uh, the in this case, the best team to lose. So, <laughs> but, but, you know, the idea that we could be passionately, fervently committed to God, we want Him to prevail, we want His cause, His light, His truth to prevail... But we don't want to be against anything that's against God. That doesn't make sense. We, we must be against the things that are against God. So God is constantly telling them to oppose these Canaanites and their religion and not be influenced by them. Now, if they say in their heart, verse 17, these nations are greater than I, how can I dispossess them? You know, that's back to the intimidation factor that they had felt when they first sent the spies in 40 years before. There's such a danger of dwelling on the strength of the enemy rather than on the strength of God. And he says, you need to go back and remember what God did to Pharaoh and to Egypt. The signs and the wonders and the mighty hand and the outstretched arm. You go back and remember God's saving acts in Egypt. That's such a theme in Deuteronomy. It's really a theme through the Bible. We gain trust and confidence in God's ability to defeat current enemies by seeing how He's defeated past enemies. And we need that same thing. Sometimes I hear people saying like, oh, the devil's just so strong. That temptation is just so powerful. I just, I just, I just couldn't deal with it. Well, I think it's, a, it's an error when we over-exalt the strength of the enemy. Now, is the devil a roaring lion trying to, to devour us? Yes. Is there one who's stronger than that roaring lion? Yes. And that's where we need to focus our attention. 
and let the Lord strengthen us to overcome that royal line. Thoughts and comments on this section? Seth? God has always chosen the weakest and the smallest and the puniest of people to display his strength. You think of David versus Goliath. Uh, you think of, uh, of so many. It's Psalm 8, that out of the, the mouth of babes, God displays his strength. Uh, if we say, I can't do something God wants me to because I am pow- I'm, not, I'm not strong enough, uh, I don't have enough numbers with me, uh, I, I'm too weak, um, we're, what we're really saying is, God, you haven't blessed me enough to do what you want me to do. But God has always used the weakest of people to show his greatest of strength. He says, I didn't choose you for your numbers. He didn't choose the wisest and strongest people to be his apostles. He chose fishermen and uneducated men. He can use those people. He can use me with all of my weaknesses as well. Amen. Great point. Alex. And uh, he makes that point. Paul makes that point in First Corinthians 1 uh, that God has chosen the weak. Uh, to put to shame those who are wise. Yes, exactly. Some people are too self-confident and self-reliant for God to use them. God prefers using those that are humble and that rely on Him. That They give Him the glory uh, instead of stealing it from Him. Other thoughts? Just a comment about His loving kindness and, and uh faithfulness through a thousandth generation, you know, most of us will live a few. <laughs> they did, and there haven't even been a thousand in all of time, and and yet that's the way he describes it. Obviously not literal, but you know, that, that concept is comforting. Yeah, he's absolutely trustworthy. Seth? Uh, this is one of the passages I, I love in the song um, about how I don't know why God's wondrous grace to me He hath made known, or why He chose to love me, um, but He loves me because He loves me, and, and that means that I am valuable. I don't know why, but I do know whom and that I can believe in, put my trust in, that He is able uh, to keep everything for me. Amen. Yeah. Great thought. Alright. Um, so, 20 to 26. Moreover, the Lord your God will send the hornet against them until those who are left. You're too far back, Jack. Why don't you come up here and read? You want to? Okay. It's hard to hear back here. Go ahead, Kevin. Go ahead. Sorry. You're you're fine. Uh, Moreover, the Lord your God will send the hornet against them until those who are left and hide themselves from you perish. You shall not dread them. The Lord your God is in your midst, a great and awesome God. The Lord your God will clear away these nations from before you by little, little by little. You will not be able to put an end to them quickly, for the wild beasts will grow too numerous for you. The Lord your God will deliver them from before you, and will throw them into a great confusion until they are destroyed. He will deliver their kings into your hands, that you will make them make their name perish from under heaven. No man will be able to stand before you until you have destroyed them. The graven images of their gods you are to burn with fire. You shall not covet the silver or the gold that is in them, nor take it for yourselves, or you will be ensnared by it. For it is an abomination to the Lord your God. You shall bring an abomination into your house, and like it come under uh, and like it come under the ban, so that you utterly detest it and shall utterly abhor it. For it is something banned. 
Well, this is quite a uh, contrast with what we saw in chapter 1. You remember when the Israelites tried to conquer Canaan on their own? That the Amorites came out and chased them like bees? Well, here, as they go in with faith and trust in God, God sends the hornet to destroy their enemies. So it's quite a reversal of that earlier situation. God will destroy them little by little, not all at once. If he were to destroy the Canaanites all at once, uh, the elimination of that population would lead to a dangerous increase in the wild animal population, which was a problem in Israel. Sometimes you don't think about that. They had a lot of dangerous animals. And so he says, I'm just going to little by little destroy them from before you as you're able to take over and occupy the territory, which would work very well. God would do that uh, by verse 23, throwing them into great confusion until they are destroyed. God can send uh, pandemonium uh, into the camp of his enemies. He will deliver their kings, and no man will be able to stand before you. So God is going to give them great victory, but what is their responsibility when they get the victory? Verse 25 and 26, they are to destroy everything connected with idolatry the graven images to burn with fire and not even try to salvage or recycle the silver and gold in them you know at least can't we melt them down and do something with those precious metals no they were not to even keep the gold or the silver their association with false worship made them totally unsuitable for use by God's people destroy them. God detested these things. And we need to also. It's important for us to have the same outlook on things that God does. To look at them the same way. God hates false worship. We must do so also. You know, the Israelites did not have a high status background. Think about it. Where were they? In the wilderness, and before the wilderness. Slaves in Egypt. You know, I mean, that's not really high on the social totem pole, right? And and in in the wilderness, they were basically what? Nomads. Nomads, yeah. You know, and again, Nomadic peoples are not generally highly regarded for their sophistication, for their cultural advancements and things like that. So here is this kind of uh, not very sophisticated, not very impressive nation going into Canaan, where you've got these established nations for generations, hundreds of years. You know, and they've got their culture and they've built up their worship system and their temples and their cities. And, and they're a proud and impressive people to a nation like the Israelites. So there's an attraction. You know, we like that sophistication. We like to think of ourselves as sort of intellectual. That's a danger for us. There's a lot of false religion. <laughs> that is impressive, that seems a little not so ignorant, not so uncultured, you know, not so narrow-minded, things like that, that sometimes we begin to kind of want to 
not look so dumb in front of our friends, especially our well-educated and, and uh, you know, more fluent friends. You know, it's just kind of shameful to think that we're still back here in these non-progressive views of the world and of religion and things like that. There's, there's just that kind of an attitude sometimes. That the Israelites, they were, they were attracted and impressed by the Canaanites and their religion. God says, don't have anything to do with it. Destroy it, get rid of it. And get it out of your system, get it out of your life, get it out of your sight. We've got to have more of a passionate zeal against false worship, against the things that are sophisticated in a worldly sense, but have no status before God. Comments or questions here on chapter 7? Okay, chapter 8 is a new danger. The danger 